Hello and welcome to Brainstorm. In October 2019, the Kenyan long-distance runner Eliud Kipchoge became the first human to run a marathon in under two hours. It's one of the greatest sporting achievements ever seen. Some scientists say it's on the fringes of what is humanly possible. But it's an example of the ultimate goal of elite athletes to push their bodies beyond all expectations and achieve firsts in their sport. To get there, athletes have got scientific in their search for an edge and look to the field of sports science for answers. It's a relatively new discipline, but it's transformed how we think about the limits of human performance. Well, to talk a bit more about this, I'm joined by sports scientist Neve Mallon, who works at Oroco, based in NUI Galway, Brendan Egan, Professor of Sport and Exercise Physiology at Dublin City University, and on the line from Mayo is Tom Cummings, Lecturer in Human Movement Science at the University of Limerick. You're all very welcome. Uh, Neve. just to start... Uh, you uh, have played camogie at the highest level. Uh, you're based up in Portaferry. Uh, you've done that since childhood, but I gather something happened when you were 17 that really set you on the course to becoming a sports scientist. Yeah, I suppose I ruptured my ACL um, at 17 years of age. Um, you're cru- cruciate. Yeah, cruciate. Yeah, 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 sorry. At 17 years of age and I'd always been a sports fanatic and was intrigued by, by sport in general, but I suppose... Throughout the recovery and rehab process, I became more intrigued and more curious around the recovery process and if there was any sort of edge I could get out there in terms of speeding up the recovery and very simply getting back on the field of play. And through some research, um, I suppose, and a lot of reading, um, I became more intrigued by the science behind human performance. And I suppose then something clicked with me that maybe sports science and pursuing a career is something that that would, would be really interesting to me if if possible. And, and a cruciate is every athlete's nightmare. Did you get over it quickly? Yeah, I got back playing within eight and a half months, which is below the, the nine-month window, as they talk about. So something worked. <laughs> and, <laughs> and Brendan, you, you were born, you were an amazing combination, born in Detroit, reared in rural Sligo. <laughs> yeah, yeah, unusual. Uh, your dad was heavily involved in GA and he had such a long playing career, I gather, that you actually ended up playing a match with him <laughs> at the start of your career. Yeah, well, I suppose it was a combination of I was playing from a relatively young age and then he was playing into uh, into his uh, 50s. So, uh, yeah, my earliest memories, many of them were about being in dressing rooms, uh, usually with my father when, when he was a player and then later when he became a manager. Um, and so it's not that I had an inspirational reason to do science per se, but I was always very sporty and heavily involved. And when I saw the um, the development of sports science courses in the late 90s, um, that just became something that I thought would be a good idea. And so it's proved to be. And we have in you, Tom, uh, you are a record holder, an Irish record holder, because you ended up competing in the 100 metre relay in the Sydney Olympics in, in 2000. And I know that you've spoken quite a lot about this. And you said in, in one interview, you said, I had a race at 9.30am and there were 120,000 people in the stadium, which is just a phenomenal thing to, to imagine. Yeah, yeah. Oh, oh absolutely. You know, where I was lucky to, to qualify for the Sydney Olympics and to compete there and this was what an Olympics really with the Australians so passionate about their sport and it was reflected really in the atmosphere that was there and it's what they kind of instilled in me I suppose you know um, I suppose a, a drive to uh, to pursue sports science and to kind of apply it um, after my athletics career but um, 
but yeah, you know, a, a fantastic experience for sure. And can we just start a bit with the basics, uh, maybe with you, Brendan? I mean, obviously, when it comes to, to the idea of performance in sports, it goes back to sort of ancient Greek time in terms of actually looking at nutrition and fitness and even things like the equivalent of dumbbells back then. <laughs> but I just wonder, you know, sports science as a discipline is new. How do you define it? Well, I think it's an interdisciplinary science. Um, it incorporates a lot of what would people would consider more traditional sciences. So things like physiology, biology, uh, physics, chemistry. These are all the, you know what are traditional sciences that are um, thought of then in the context of sport or analysed in the, in, the, in the sense of sport. And the the thing about sports science is that while it's relatively new, uh, exercise science has been around for a long time. And sometimes we say a sport and exercise science, you know, they're the typical degree programs, um, which just recognizes that we've known a lot about how exercise can affect the body for a long time. And it's probably in the last 30 to 40 years that we've seen much more around uh, using the idea that these sciences can then inform and optimize sports performance. So that's where the whole sports performance elements come. And I presume it's fair to say that if there wasn't so much money in sport, it probably wouldn't have necessarily emerged in the way that it has. Yeah, I suppose one of, that would be a drive. I mean, in my area of, of nutrition, you know, one of the main drivers in the 80s was the introduction of Gatorade and, you know, much of the research that was done around hydration and sports performance, particularly around the, the use of carbohydrate, um, that was all driven by uh, a lot of work being done by Gatorade and later Powerade through Coca-Cola, you know. So there is definitely an element where if sales of products can, you know, help uh, drive research that that sometimes is the way it works yeah. and Tom I suppose also many people might remember the Eastern Bloc countries in the 1980s you know using sports science for their athletes to get the edge yes um, I, I, I suppose you know um, the, I, I, you would have had sports science definitely back in the 80s um, that we may have been a little bit further behind with regard to that but I think um, nowadays in Ireland you know the application of sports science uh, within the early sport is well advanced. Neve, your company signed a deal with um, NBA basketball players in the US and I just wonder, can you give a few examples of, of how you provide them with advantage using a variety of science? Yeah, I suppose our company's background is in blood biomarkers. So essentially uh, we have developed a point of care test whereby we run redox is what we we refer to it as and this is where we can test the athletes stress and defense levels so we would run very simply a pinprick of the finger and get a small blood sample and based off that within roughly seven minutes we can see the athlete's stress defense levels and essentially the readiness to train or the readiness to play which then obviously transpires in their ability to sort of um stay clear of injury and stay clear of illness and very simply the less likely the athlete is to pick up an injury the less likely they are to be ill the better the performer um overall and and so you're just looking for biomarkers in their blood all the time yeah so yeah. the stress and defense markers that, that we look for would are known as fort and ford and then based off that we can get an oxidative stress index so oxidative stress um you need a small bit of oxidative stress for adaption, but not too much for injury. So we're looking for the sweet spot. And based off our point of care test, we can sort of see where the athlete is in terms of their own individual sweet spot. And based off that, reduce the likelihood of injury and illness. And, you know, Brendan, it's funny, you know, so much of sports science from what I've read is, is just driven mm. constantly by data and data at a very granular level, like mm. Neve is talking about. 
Yeah, I mean, the example she gave there, the readiness to train, I mean, that was uh, initially, the, you know, obviously she's speaking about moving to blood-based biomarkers. One of the big innovations over the last 15 years since I started playing Gaelic games was that we began to monitor training in much more detail. So we began to look at, at recovery indices or began to look even at subjective measures of wellness. You know, how do you feel? Are you tired? You know, these types of things. And all of that began to develop from where people were recording it in, you know, Microsoft Excel or on paper-based formats to then being put into computer algorithms and spitting out these numbers that say, athlete A is ready to train and athlete B is maybe under-recovered and, and so on and so forth. And so, so does it pull a lot of the kind of control and knowledge away from the coach? You know, historically, the coach presumably would have been the one or the team of coaches around the players. Yeah, I would say it doesn't change things dramatically, but it does introduce a, a more informed element to coaching. There's still an art to coaching that uh, in almost some ways can't be taught but of course the sports scientists would say you can't teach elements of it but uh, there is still some uh, art that remains there but uh, certainly the numbers um, give us a, you know an, a better better information around individual athletes and uh, it's up then to the coaches to use it or in some cases ignore it it really depends on their philosophy around the science. So you're collecting the data on what had happened in mm. terms of the athlete uh, himself or herself but then you use your own scientific te- techniques to kind of find out why it happened. In some respects yeah I mean so you've got an element where you've got something that's happening you know what we would say in practice so in the field and that's what coaches and, and athletes are doing and then behind that is the science you know it's to be done in the lab with the likes of the, the work that we would do and so it's that translation of science into practice that's one of the core tenets I suppose of sports science and how it becomes useful we can take lab-based measures and apply them in a more broader practical sense and uh, hopefully deliver some value to athletes. Tom I'm just wondering yourself I mean obviously you have a history of being a competitive and successful athlete and now you you work in academia you've helped athletes like Keith Earls achieve faster speeds but back when you were competing would that kind of data been something that you would have got yourself back in the year 2000 or is this much more recent much more recent without a doubt back in 2000 um yeah we'd excellent coaches um but i suppose our sports science support and you know the services of the institute the sport Ireland institute weren't really as well up and running so we, we didn't have that big data um, to guide us. So I suppose we had the art of coaching in some ways. Um, and without a doubt, that, that data set definitely had been coaches. Um, but it presents a huge challenge, though, because we can become swamped with data mm. and we kind of sometimes see the wood for the trees. Um, so it's how that's a still down and translated for coaches to apply it is, I suppose, another art of the science that needs, that needs uh, attention as well. So give me some examples, if you have any, of collecting data that really is essentially quite useless. Um, I, I think it, it all serves a purpose. In some ways, it's how a coach can use it. So I give an example from, from when I worked within rugby was that we would have our GPS data, we would have readiness to train data, we would have workload data. But I, I suppose it is how does a coach know that if I, you know, cut 10 minutes off a drill, I will affect their workload. So, you know, what I ended up doing actually within it when I worked within rugby was taking a 10 page weekly report and cutting it down to two pages and giving the coach one or two variables that he could adapt. And he if he adapted his train, he could actually see these variables change and thus the workload change. Is it your experience that athletes want to know all this data themselves? No, some do and some don't. So some athletes, yes, um, they will have that background where they want that data, they want to understand it, they want to distill it. And you'll have others who will, I suppose, trust you and they don't really want to know about the data. So without a doubt, I, I, I've seen across the spectrum in my coaching career in strength and conditioning athletes who really in, enjoy the data and want to d- discuss it and others who just want you to take the lead and tell them what to do. 
And that's fine. Whichever I suppose works with the athletes is, is the key thing. Brendan, I remember in, back in 2015, the FIFA's, um, FIFA's Women's World Cup final and they had changed the laws of the game. So the players were wearing a kind of wearable to collect data and it allowed the managers and the coaches to essentially substitute mm. them. You know, so they just looked at the data constantly. Mm. And, and I just wonder how much how much can you take account of things from the data as opposed to your essential gut instinct? Yeah, that's a it's a tricky one to answer because I think when initially when all of this data began to be presented and GPS is a good example of that, is that people almost um, passed judgment or decision making to the data. And they were looking at, like you say, what you're talking about there really is distance covered or number of sprints performed or numbers of change of direction and that that can indicate fatigue. And maybe there's a threshold that once you go above, you're either more likely to make or have an injury or more likely to make a bad decision. But that's probability. It's, you know, you're saying more likely, but doesn't mean it definitely will be the case. And sometimes, you know, I've heard many stories of athletes that were pulled out of games this is going back a few years now, it kind of doesn't happen anymore because people have moved on from it, but where they were pulled out of games because the data said they should be pulled out, yet they were performing well and they didn't want to come out of the game. So I think there was there was a bit of a teething period there for three or four years where you know we all heard crazy examples where people were removed from games because the data said so, not because of what was happening on the field. How do you account for psychology and the role of emotion in all of this? Like, I'm very mindful of the, the likes of The Last Dance and Netflix a documentary about the Chicago Bulls and you have in Phil Jackson, the famous coach that led them to all those successes, someone who I would imagine now would look at this stuff. I mean, I have no idea, but he seemed more almost like of a mystical coach, his mm-hmm. presence being something that you, was intangible. You couldn't quite put your mm-hmm. finger on it. Why was it he worked, but mm-hmm. he just worked. And, you know, does sports science get involved in, in that side of things or can it? Yeah, I mean, uh, I should have probably said earlier, like uh, psychology, again, is one of the major um, pa- uh, pillars of sports science as well. And coaching arises out of that. And, you know, many of these sciences that I'm mentioning, they're all interlinked. Um, so none of it's really in isolation but coaching is an example of where you have like you said there is science behind it there are different types of coaches there are different styles of management there are ways to create cultures within certain environments and many of the best teams that you look at they will have uh, certain characteristics that are common to them and the examples we talked about offline were things like like that Chicago Bulls or the um, the All Blacks or even Leinster Rugby in Leinster, and, yeah. more recently uh, Dublin footballers for example um, knowing what I know about the different environments you know they do have these core features um, and, and whether you can um, distill them whether it's down to the coach or the athletes themselves or how it's created you know that's not my area of expertise but I think in the area of coaching science and psychology there's a lot of work done on that area And one thing I mean Tom I don't know if you have anything to say on this but one thing that was really clear in the last dance if people haven't seen it it's you know on Michael Jordan essentially but the players around him but there was a lot of smoking cigars drinking till four in the morning before the the the, the game that you know that they won to win the championship and I just wonder like are, are there just some exceptional athletes for whom there are no rules and they just perform and perform and perform uh, without a doubt you're going to have very exceptionally talented athletes that will perform but I suppose at some stage they will come to uh, a ceiling limit and that's where the sports science can help get maybe get through that ceiling or get through a plateau in performance and it's like it's not you know it, it's that support that allows them to find where is the individual weakness where is the individual area you, you need to work on and the I suppose the science that's within sports science has allowed us to really get into the individual planning that allows people to break through the ceiling break through their targets and actually excel.
I mean, so much of sports science looks at all the different variables, both internal and external to the athlete and how they affect performance. And Neve, I know that you specialise in an area that many, you know, not many of us talk about anyway in life, let alone when it comes to sport. And that's how women's menstrual cycles affect their performance. Um, You know, is it fair to say that sports science has focused a lot on men in the past? Absolutely. Um, I think men are somewhat less variable. Um, so research has always been conducted. Brendan's <laughs> nodding in agreement. <laughs> um, research has been conducted in medicine in men um, and then that obviously rolled down into sports science and thankfully things are changing, not to the extent that we want them to change, but the ball is rolling in the right direction. So let's imagine a lineup of sort of an iconic 100 metre race and you have, I don't know, eight female athletes that are there ready to go. When it comes to their menstrual cycle and the different stages they, they will be at, who is at an, ad- an advantage and who is at a disadvantage on well, that lineup? I suppose through the work that we've done, we would say none of them should be an advantage based off their menstrual cycle. If they track their cycle, they understand the levels of hormones fluctuating in their body, where, they are, where they're at at that time point and mitigate the symptoms around that, absolutely none of them should be at an advantage. But obviously, as we were chatting about before, there is a psychological element and mood. You know, girls and women, females, um, are always sort of susceptible to changes in mood and that there has been research conducted to say that there is a psychological element uh, as physiologically prepared as they are you have to consider the psychological element but, but from a menstrual cycle standpoint if they're well prepared and they track their cycle regularly none of them should be at an advantage or disadvantage and you know there are different phases obviously of the cycle itself mm-hmm. uh, physiologically does that change how athletes should behave absolutely and um, so the menstrual cycle is essentially a process whereby hormones are continuously fluctuating and the two main hormones that drive this are oestrogen and progesterone and throughout the cycle um, we have broken it into four phases whereby oestrogen and progesterone will rise and fall and based on where the oestrogen and progesterone are um, in this process it is an inflammatory process therefore within each phase um, different considerations nutritionally um, training volume, training load recovery, sleep-wise, will all change with that. And so for women, I mean, I would have imagined that a lot of athletes, first of all, probably don't menstruate because they push their bodies so hard. But if they did find it affected them, certainly from an emotional point of view, that they would take some sort of, I don't know, take the pill to stop them from menstruating. Absolutely. But from our work, we say that from an athletic perspective, it's absolutely essential that you menstruate regularly. As this informs practitioners that the body's in an adaptive state. So in other words, they have sufficient energy um, to adapt um, and respond to any training stimulus or any sort of load which their body is being placed under. It also allows us to understand that they have the ability to fight off infection, any changes in temperature, um, and, and essentially their body's in a, a reproductive state. So women are in a unique position when compared to men. Um, a menstrual cycle is a vital sign that their body's in a good state of health and I suppose that's a weapon and a tool um, that women can use to their advantage. And I presume, I mean, you work for a company, you are going to see if this is applicable to a broader audience than just elite athletes. Absolutely. Um, an elite athlete, first and foremost, is a female. Um, and we in Oracle have developed the Fitter Woman app, which is sort of wanting to break down um, the science into sort of bite-sized 
education for the masses um, to allow women of all standards of if it's somebody who wants to go for a, a 5k run as opposed to an elite athlete competing in the World Cup final um, they're a female first and foremost and they should be equipped with the tools to understand their body and work with it. And Tom, I know that you have done quite a bit of work uh, in in sort of applying the basics of sports science to older people and, and improving their physical activity in, in older people in the population. Yeah, I think within um, our department, the Physical Education Sports Science Department in UL, there is a lot of work around the area of physical activity and how we can help with, the, with, with, with ageing. Um, there is the um, the National Centre for Exercise and Medicine based there and we have, I suppose, this whole strand now um, of exercise as medicine, uh, looking at it from perspective of physi- physiological changes and also psychological changes and your mental health and mental well-being. So um, there is a lot of work being done in this area and it is, I suppose, an emerging area and our, our, our degree programme in, in UL is called Sport and Exercise Sciences uh, and similar in, in DCU and it'll cover both areas, elite performance and also health and well-being and how exercise can help across the lifespan. And so exercise as medicine, I mean, the idea of going to a doctor and the doctor saying this is what you need to do, you need to now go and, you know, uh, undertake this particular sort of regime of, of exercise. Yeah, and there's a number of programmes that have run um, uh, both out of DCU and out of UL and uh, Professor Catherine Woods, who was previously DCU and now UL has been kind of instrumental in this area of a medics programme, uh, which is, you know, involves um, patients generally from um, after cardiac events and cardiac rehab being... Um, being sent to this medics program and going through uh, a supervised program in order to get people back up, back back moving, get their fitness back up and get them into that uh, sort of behavioural change that they can change their their outlook on physical activity and engage in a long-term setting on physical activity. We have another program in UL that's called Move for Life uh, and the same idea of trying to keep people involved in physical activity throughout the lifespan. And I suppose it's just worth mentioning that the sports partnerships around the country have been instrumental in this area as well. Um, so it's a very positive, I suppose, uh, application of sport and exercise sciences outside of the elite sport as well. And I suppose, Brendan, it's inevitable that all of this will, will trickle down to the masses like me, you know, fr- from the elite in terms of what they do. I just wonder when it comes to uh, nutrition and, and what we should all be eating, does it translate well? Because you take something like, um, we'll say, protein mm. Um, it seems to me that it makes sense if you're an elite athlete to look at your protein intake and maximise it. If you're someone like me who exercises, I don't know, goes for a run for half an hour every day, it doesn't make so much sense, does it? Yeah, well, I'd, I'd echo Neve's point initially is that, you know, all athletes are fun, they're humans at the, at the start. And so the uh, guidelines that we give them, at, you know, at the very base in terms of what their diet should be is generally along the guidelines that we give to most people. Uh, the thing is that an, uh, an active individual, particularly an elite athlete who's training, you know, several hours a day in some cases and, and you know many days of the week uh, they've increased demand for a variety of different macronutrients which are you know your protein carbohydrate and fat but also then the micronutrients as well so they do require um, adjustments to their diet that are um, that are important and so you're asking about protein and maybe as protein supplements uh, as the definition of the word supplement is that it's something that's added to the diet when it might not be there and so in certain individuals I'm particularly thinking of um, very large athletes who have very high uh, protein um, needs Sometimes the only way to get that extra protein is for them to take a protein supplement. But that shouldn't be interpreted by everyone in the population as I need to take a protein supplement because an elite athlete does. And I think a lot of companies will use that as a marketing tool, almost like elite athletes are doing it. If you want to be like an athlete, then you should do it too. 
but of course all of this thing particularly in the area of nutrition um, is about context and so the difference between what an elite athlete needs and what an average member of the population needs is really rather is massive <laughs> and I'm also aware that there was that whole phase of elite athletes drinking their own urine and claiming that somehow that was gave them a huge <laughs> that advantage that was <laughs> <laughs> uh, I just wonder you know we mentioned Kipchoge's uh, sub to our marathon earlier and you know he is one of nearly I'd say all elite athletes who are pushing the limit mm. of human ability and I'm just thinking also of someone like Simone Biles mm. the American gymnast who has done things that no other gymnast has done before mm. I mean there are limits to human ability aren't mm. there yeah well I, I think um, you know there's a difference I suppose in predicting limits within um, a sport where it's trying to get from A to B as quick as possible whereas in a team sport it's hard to know you know there's so many different dynamics that we you know we can't even measure um, but in the con- you know the, the marathon's a good example I mean it's over 20 years ago since uh, Michael Joyner uh, wrote an, um, an, an article about the modelling what is the perf- or, you know the fastest marathon time that could be done by a human and so it was based upon you know what was the person's aerobic fitness where was their lactate threshold that what was the running economy which is basically how much energy do, you, do they expend um, per unit of speed and based on that he predicted that it somewhere, was somewhere between 156 and 157 would be the fastest that a human could run the marathon the marathon yeah. so pushing it down from a, you know the, the world record at that time was somewhere around uh, 210 and now it's come down to you know obviously much closer to two and so uh, I'm talking about unassisted here uh, and so yeah it's uh, going to be interesting to see whether they can push it that, that little bit further And Tom as an Irish record holder obviously you pushed the limits quite a lot uh, and it's a record that is held for 20 years but I just wonder you know where for example could the improvement come in I don't know Usain Bolt's 9.58 for the 100 metres um, I, I, I think you know Improvements will always come from looking at the application of the different aspects of sports science. For example, looking at technique um, and looking at uh, strength training and power training. And I think where it can come is from, from individualization. So what we're getting to now is uh, we have a lot of technologies out there that can be used um, outside of the lab. So there's a lot of these wearable devices, inertia measuring units. Um, that can be, you know, put onto people, put onto their feet, put on their waist. They can go to the gym, they can jump. You can get scores straight away to tell you what their power is like, what their strength is like. And this is data that is proving to be reliable and valid as the technology is improving. And then you're getting accurate data that you can act on on the spot and change training on the spot to make you more individual, more specific. And I think as we progress this way and use data and technology in this manner, um, it, we can make improvements uh, for a number of different athletes. You know, whether we can use Bolt any faster than he was at the time is difficult to know, but it can. this type of philosophy can be applied to many athletes to make gains, I would think. It's, it's just fascinating stuff. I mean, but we have to finish now, but before we end, I mean, I'm aware that you all work with elite athletes and I wonder, personally, is there anything you take home from this kind of performance and, and the kind of advice that you give them? I mean, Brendan, what do you do or what do you not do to keep what fit? What do I not do? Um, <laughs> well, um, if, I, if I've learned one thing from, from the best athletes, um, it's that they have routine and structure to almost everything they do. So... Uh, very little is left to random chance and uh, you know they've got basic principles um, good routines and they then layer things upon upon that um, so that's what I would give listeners for advice uh, don't don't listen to what I have to say about uh, my own dietary and exercise habits <laughs> <laughs> Neve, yeah I would say 
similar to Brendan, um, hard work is, is hard to beat. Um, you can have all the scientific practices in the world, but if you're not prepared to be disciplined, committed and work hard at something, you're not going to achieve much. And Tom? Yeah, look, the, the best athletes are the ones that are totally and utterly focused. And I think if you're looking at a coach or a sports scientist, the, oh, the science is fantastic, the science helps us, but it's distilling that down to the athletes and developing you know, a really positive a trusting relationship with an athlete is really where you'd make those gains and be able to apply the science. Well, it's just such a fascinating area. And Neve Mallon, Brendan Egan and Tom Cummins, thank you all very much indeed. Thank you. Pleasure.